0: First and foremost, welcome and thanks for listening. This is the Weekly Podcast. My name is Jeremy. I want to let you guys know that we are available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Overcast, Radio Republic, Anchor, and iHeartRadio. That is Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Overcast, Radio, Public, and Anchor, and iHeartRadio. So subscribe to our show. uh, Give us a good rating and or a good review. This is a one-man operation and we could use help. If you would like to donate to the production of our show, you can click a link in the show notes. Uh, I'll have the link to Anchor Support in the show notes. I'll have a link to PayPal in the show notes. Um, Visit our Instagram page. Which is Duh Weekly Podcast. Visit our Twitter. That is at the weekly podcast. Or you can look us up on Facebook under Jeremy Pale. Uh J-E-R-E-M-Y-P-E-L-L. Uh we have a page under YAMS Y-A-M-S and a uh Duh Weekly Podcast discussion group. I have links. Under our Instagram page to our GoFundMe account right now, we are trying to raise money for individuals uh, that has been affected by the coronavirus in our area. We are in East Tennessee. Uh, we've been able to raise only $50 so far, but that is an amazing $50, and I'm so grateful for it. We've been able to put some with it. And so far, we have been able to purchase about $270 worth of food for Family and their animals in this area. If we do raise enough, we're we're more than willing to. What we're looking to do basically is we're looking to provide food for the families and their animals and just the basic stuff. Now, if we do raise enough, we can. uh, We would love to be able to do some rental assistance and things like that for those that aren't able to get anything, you know, with a mortgage put off or. Uh, they don't have the abilities to to put anything off for for ninety days. I am officially a full time podcast host because I also have lost my job in March of uh, this year, March the eleventh. But I know everybody's suffering. Um, times are hard right now. It's just something we've never experienced, and we just don't we don't know what to do. It's uh, the the economic impact is is hard or harder on others than the health side of things. And the health side of things are harder for others than the economic impact. It's a double whammy in my opinion. But hopefully uh, we'll get through it. And we will get through it. There ain't no hopefully to it. Just, you know, we'll social distance and we'll isolate at home. And at the end of that, we may all be living in dumpsters. But fuck it. It's all right. Um, like I said, uh, all donations right now. ...to the show, whether it be through Anchor, PayPal... Uh, ...we do not have Patreon up. We're looking to hopefully do that by the end of the month. Um, But click in show notes. I will do my best to have every link available in there... ...to be able to donate. Uh, But all donations right now, whether you donate to help produce this show... ...through Anchor, through PayPal through GoFundMe, whatever. It's all going to be funneled through that GoFundMe page or through what we're what we're trying to do to help. But you can find us on Instagram, Duh Weekly Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Duh Weekly Podcast, Facebook at Jeremy Pell or Yams and the Duh Weekly Podcast discussion group. But help us out. If you can, like I said, I know that it is tough right now for everybody. So... Trust me, I understand. I understand completely. But if you can, we're going to try to have every, everything there available. Um, support the show. Subscribe to the show. Give us a rating, a review if you can help us out. It's, we're just trying to grow this. And I know that it's very. It's a very basic show. And uh, that's just all I got. So, my cell phone, my closet, and myself. So, this is the Pandemic Distraction Episode 1 of the weekly podcast I'm sure everybody at this point is so sick and tired of fucking home isolation you don't know what day it is do you even give a shit what day it is um, I have found myself to have zero uh, what is the word I'm looking for I got no drive, no desire. I'm I'm slacking here. I'm losing it. It's driving me nuts. But I know everybody is in the same situation. Well, some, not everybody, because I will tell you this. I have had to go out a few times, and I have seen certain situations. At say Walmart, I went one time to get something, and that place looked like fucking Christmas Eve because everybody I guess got their damn stimulus money. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I I think I qualify because I sure as hell don't make $99,000 a year, but I just haven't gotten it. And I know why. It's because uh, Jackson Hewitt and their serve card in American Express, and from what I've read, there's 21 million people that are have been totally fucked off by it. But you, you live and learn, I guess. I'm assuming nobody expected a pandemic and a, a, an extra bit of money from the government. But whether you agree with it, whether you disagree with it, I'm not talking politics because I, I I'm not getting into that. I am a equal opportunist at this podcast. I want every asshole in America and, and all across the, the world to listen. Um, you know, back years ago when I was in high school, uh, there is a cave that that's the well. It's, it's in a subdivision, but it's it's the subdivisions on the lake, and you go through the woods. And there's not back when I was in high school, there wasn't that many. Uh, houses in the subdivision so you could go down there a little bit easier than you could today but there is a cave down there and in the winter time when the lake is down this cave you're able to go into this cave and back through it now let me describe this cave to you best i can there's a hole in the ground that's about six seven foot round whatever so it's easy to crawl down in you go down about five foot and there is, you're, you're about five or six feet down into the ground. There is a little, like a ledge, we'll say, that's about five foot wide. Now, on this ledge, you can step down about another three or four foot, and it opens into this huge room that just looks like it's probably 30 foot across, and it widens out to about 30 foot wide. Now, off to the, you're standing on this ledge, you're looking out to this room. It's a cave, obviously, big opening down into the mouth. once you go through the mouth of this cave down into the cave, big opening, but to the left, there is a hill that's about six foot tall. You go up the hill um and it goes back into the part of the cave that you can you have to crawl around in and whatever but through through the years there's people that's you know camped in this cave or whatever, so the story goes me and, and it's true story. Me and my friend go down in there, and you, there's quite a bit of sunlight that comes through that six-foot opening because it's only five or six feet down onto this little ledge. But about 30 foot across, as my eyes start to dilate, we don't have a flashlight. We're not planning on going too far into it. We were just screwing around. But as my eyes start to dilate, I say to my friend, I was like, that sort of God looks like a dead body. And you could see what looked like a, a white individual laid on its back with his chin pressed against its chest and its right arm hung out and something shiny on the wrist i'm like that is a fucking dead body his eyes hadn't dilated enough whatever to see it then all of a sudden he screams bloody murder runs out of the cave well i run he runs we run back in we go back into the cave and we're standing there on this ledge and we're thinking and we're talking. Man, we got to get a flashlight. I swear to God, that's a fucking dead body. That's a dead body. Look at the arm. Look at the shiny thing on the wrist. That is a, look, that is a dead body. Holy shit. So we're down there like 20, well, 10 to 15 minutes just talking about we're going to get a flashlight. We're coming back. Whatever. So we leave. We go to a couple of different friends that are in that area to get a flashlight. No, nobody finally we find one. About 30 minutes later, we go back down in there. We shine that flashlight over there. And guess what's over there? Nothing. But, from where we thought was a dead body laying, you can see that something had been dragged across the mud all the way from where we saw that up that little hill that goes back into the caverns and disappeared. So something was there. Something was or someone was down there listening to us tell our story about how we're coming back with a flashlight, and while we were gone, they drug the body across the cave, opening, and up into the back part of the cave that you can't go without crawling or whatever you're going to do. That is a true story. That story has stuck with me for 20, well, 25 years And uh, it really has nothing to do with what I'm getting ready to tell you today. But I wanted to tell you the story because I think I've seen a dead body. So this next gentleman has seen tons of dead bodies because he is an asshole. And I asked the question not long ago whether Gary Ridgway, a.k.a. the Green River Killer, was smart lucky, or both? So I ask you the same question. Was Gary Ridgway, because he had gotten away with it for so long, smart, lucky, or both? But I ask you this first. If I say, what what does the name Wendy Lee Caulfield mean to you? Or the name Giselle Ann Lovorn? Or Deborah Lynn Bonner? Marcia Faye Chapman. Cynthia Jean Hines. Opal Charmaine Mills. Terry Renee Milligan. Mary Bridget Meehan. Deborah Lorraine Estes. Linda Sue, Linda Jane Rule. I don't know where I got Sue. I mean, hell, it says Jane right here, Linda. Linda Jane Rule. Denise Darcell Bush. Shonda Leah Summers, Shirley Marie Sherrill, Rebecca Marrero, Sandra Denise Major, Alma Ann Smith, Dolores Laverne Williams, Gail Lynn Matthews, Andrea M. Childers, Sandra K. Gabbert, Kimmy Kai Pitzer, Marie M. Malvar, Carol Ann Christensen, Martine Teresa Authorly, Cheryl Lee Wims, Yvonne Shelley Antioch, sorry, shit. Yvonne Shelley Antosh Carrie Ann Ross, Carrie Ann Royce, R O I S Constance Elizabeth Neon. Kelly Marie Ware, Tina Marie Thompson, April Dawn Butram, Debbie Mae Abernathy, Tracy Ann Winston, Maureen Sue Freeney, Mary Sue Bello, Pammy Annette Event, Delise Louise Plager, Kimberly L. Nelson, Lisa Yates, Mary Exetta West, Cindy Ann Smith, Patricia Michelle Barzak, Roberta Joseph Hayes, Marta Reeves, Patricia Yellowrope, and there's a few more that's not on this list. Who are these people? Do you know these women? I bet you've probably never heard of them. These women, albeit some, if not all, lived a high risk lifestyle, were human beings, were probably mothers, daughters, sisters, aunts, maybe grandmothers. But you don't hear enough about the victims of serial killers because we get so fixated on the sons of bitches that done the fucking killing that we forget the victims. We forget the hurt, the anguish, the pain that some of these people, if not all of them, had people affected by their death. Now I don't know these people individually but I know that they probably didn't set out, the ones that were considered prostitutes, didn't set out to say, hey, I think I want to fucking be, I want to be a prostitute. That's what I want. These people may have had issues, and we'll get into, but you don't hear enough about the victims. You don't hear their names very often. And and most of the time, we don't even know who the hell they are. Especially when you've got 40-plus victims that that you have tied to your your killing spree of all these women over 20 of them were under the age of 18 they were young even though maybe some had made mistakes they had their whole life ahead of them to to correct some mistakes to to do better to do different these people are not throwaways but yet these serial killers They go for victims, and of course, today, I don't feel like today, the late 70s, early 80s, it's just a totally different time than now. But with that being said, we still do have issues today with people being less than or being tossed to the side when it comes to others, uh, the authorities taking an interest or, or looking for them. So, what a What I'm trying to say is let's not totally forget the victims. Let's not. A lot of times we look at these as just a story. It's a story to us. It's another podcast. But to these victims, and even Gary Ridgway's wife at the time or his family, they're also victims. This had devastated many, 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 many lives over many, many years. Gary Ridgway was a free man the majority of his life. What a beautiful area, though, the northwest section of the United States. But this beautiful wilderness is also good for hiding bodies, especially when you have several to hide. At first, it's just a, a few missing prostitutes. And, of course, killers look for those that are, you know, hopefully will no one will come looking for, well, at least, you know, right away. The high-risk lifestyle of prostitutes put them in the crosshairs of serial killers. Do we ever stop and think about them? No, not so much, because everyone sometimes is, and I mean everyone sometimes, is absolutely guilty of being unconcerned with things that do not directly affect them. If it doesn't affect the fabric of our lives, then to hell with it now that's not all the time that's sometimes I'm saying everybody either but we get jaded we get complacent you know but not today you know we talk about these poor women when I bet you know as their throwaways that's how they're they're looked at at certain times but I I know they didn't wake up like I said to want to be a prostitute or to be a drug addict. They have an addiction of some kind, or was there an underlying mental illness? Only recently have we begun to even have a talk about these things, and even now we are still a long, long ways from where we should be. Too many times officials look the other way, and the reason they can is directly the cause of our the public's lack of outrage or accountability to officials for their actions or their complete lack of action. Got to hold people accountable for their actions. We are held accountable for our actions, so so, so should those in authority. So, I tell you this, I once asked, like I said at the beginning of the show, I once asked if Gary Ridgway was smart, lucky, or both. And I got answers mainly that said lucky. They said Ridgeway was borderline handicapped because his IQ was so fucking low. And maybe that's true, I don't know. But what, what does that say about the authorities that had Gary Ridgway on their radar for being the, uh, the Green River Killer and they couldn't or didn't connect the dots that would lead to an arrest? Ridgeway was smart enough to play his hand with law enforcement, more than once. He could still convince women to go with him, and he lived the majority of his life free, only until science caught up to him and his semen and finally put the Green River Killer behind bars. And then, only and only with Gary Ridgway's help, were they able to find closure for some of these families. There's still more out there. So, if Gary Ridgway is an uneducated, ignorant man, what does that say about the authorities that chased him for 30-plus years? This is Pandemic Distraction, Episode 1, duh, Weekly Podcast. Well, about 200 kilometers south of the Canadian border, that's less than a three-hour drive from the area where notorious serial killer Clifford Olson had committed his murders, is the mouth of the Green River. A beautiful, if not exactly important river, at one time its main claim to fame would have been as a provider of drinking water for the city of Tacoma, Washington. However, in the summer of 1982, It was used for an entirely different purpose, the disposal of bodies. From that point on, the river mouth, appreciated for its fishing and whitewater rafting, would be forever linked to Gary Leon Ridgway, a man dubbed the Green River Killer. Gary Leon Ridgway was born on February the 18th, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah a middle child in a family of three boys. He was raised in a working class neighborhood of Seattle, Washington. His mother ruled the household and is known to have been abusive both mentally and physically to her husband. We see that all too many times. Now Ridgeway's father drove a city bus near the airport and often complained about the nasty ass prostitutes who worked along his route. Now, I understand it's easy to uh, become jaded and become irritated with things, but man, if we could just figure out how to... And I know you can't just... I'm not saying you let people do what they want, act how they want. There's got to be consequences to actions. But prostitution's not it for me. If two consenting adults want to have sex for money, well, I mean, what the what's that any of my damn business? But anyway, Ridgeway, he got to where, hearing his dad all the time go on about these prostitutes on his route near the airport, but Ridgway was a very poor student. He didn't finish high school until he was 20 years old. Now, after graduation, he served in the United States Navy. In 1970, while stationed in San Diego, he met and married his first wife. The marriage, however, was a very brief one, and shortly after the wedding, Ridgway was assigned to a six-month tour of duty during which his bride took up with another man. So, therefore, there's marriage number one gone to shit. His wife cheated on him with another man. Although she accompanied him back to Seattle after he was discharged from the Navy, they divorced in 1971. Now, also oh, so many times, too, we see, like Ed, Ed Kemper had tried to become a police officer and was too tall, Gary Ridgway also was turned down for the police. After a failed attempt to become a policeman, Ridgway found a painting job which was customizing new trucks in Bellingham, Washington. Now, this job is conscientious and meticulous, and that was something that Ridgway found would work perfect for him. He was well-suited for this job because he paid a great deal of attention to detail, and he enjoyed it. So in December of '73, he married for a second time. And out of this marriage, a son was born within two years of the marriage. Now, for a time, it seems Ridgway, his second marriage was, was a little more stable marriage than the first one. Now, he had also, in this time, developed an intense interest in evangelical Christianity, attempting to save co-workers and neighbors. Now, I'm not going to get into a conversation about religion, but you do see a lot of times that the, in, in, the intense interest, the over-the-top, zealous interest, Types of of uh, beliefs are the one. Now, it could be Christianity, it could be any religion. I'm just saying the over the top beliefs in 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 these things. A lot of times are. I think this was an attempt for Ridgeway to try to figure out a way to 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 stop the urges because he could tell that these urges to kill were getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And he's like, well, I can't stop. What you know, maybe. Christianity, I I can be born-again Christian, all these things will go away, I'll feel different, I'll be relieved. It didn't happen. Though his dedication never ceased, it did dissipate somewhat as his second marriage began to fail. In July 1980, the couple were divorced. After his second wife left him, Ridgway began frequenting prostitutes. Now, this is a habit that uh, he had also had in his later teenage years before his first marriage. You know, within months of uh, attempt, uh, within months of frequenting the prostitutes, he was first accused of having tried to choke a prostitute on Seattle's airport strip, where his father had once driven the bus. In early 1982, he was stopped by police and questioned. After having picked up an 18 year old named Kelly McGinnis in April of that same year, 1982, he was arrested after having attempted to solicit an undercover police woman in a prostitute sting. So, within the first few months, Gary Ridgeway has already been accused of trying to choke a woman out by the airport and had been arrested for trying to pick up a prostitute, which ended up being an undercover police officer. So this is going to put him on police radar because he is known to frequent prostitutes and he is known to maybe act out in violence. Now, Ridgway was described by those who knew him as being a little strange, but friendly. He had difficulty remaining loyal to his wives, and his first two marriages came to an end because both parties had been unfaithful. Marcia Winslow, his second wife, later stated that Ridgway had once put her in a chokehold, but no charges were ever filed. During his second marriage, Ridgway discovered religion, Of course, like he said, he'd go door to door to spread the word of God. He was often heard uh, at work reading the Bible out loud and would do the same at home. He instructed his wife to follow the church pastor's teaching. Sometimes Ridgway would cry after listening to sermons at church or even after reading passages in the Bible. Throughout Throughout his marriage, like we said, Ridgway would frequent prostitutes um, he had begun by asking his wife to engage in sexual activity with him in public places or other areas where it would be inappropriate. Ridgway apparently had a very high sex drive. According to his ex-wives and girlfriends, at times he would demand sex several times in one day and was particularly fond of having sex out in the woods. Now, although Ridgway admitted to regu- regular, regularly... Hiring prostitutes, he seemed to consistently be torn between his religious beliefs and his lust, which at times was uncontrollable. He would complain regularly about the prostitutes being present in the neighborhood and how much it brought down the area, and then would pay for their services that same night. He is a walking contradiction. It is perhaps this love-hate relationship he had with prostitutes and with himself that led to him embarking on this long and prolific killing spree of the very women he loved to hate. So we see early on in his marriages, there's some red flags being thrown up. There is some situations in his marriage with his sexual appetite and his desires. Um, now, the you know the Kelly McGinnis name was one that he, he had actually was questioned while she was in the vehicle with him in 1982. But nothing comes of that. Now, in that July and August, the bodies of five females aged between 16 and 31 were found in the Green River. Most of the victims had been prostitutes. Now, the police quickly realized that the deaths were caused by one man, a serial killer. By April of 1983, this is one year, 20 girls and women had vanished. One of the disappeared was a prostitute named Marie Malvar. Now what's special about Marie Malvar is her boyfriend had watched as she had gotten into a dark-colored truck Now, he never saw her again. Now, by chance, a few days later, this boyfriend sees the truck, and he follows it to a house on South 348th Street and called the police. So, this pimp and boyfriend must have been really, really concerned if someone uh, that was, was in the business of prostitution and pimping would call the police. So, it was a serious situation. Um... The truck and house belonged to Gary Leon Ridgway. Now, at this point, he was questioned briefly by police. Now, during the late spring and summer of 1983, a dozen more women disappeared, including Kelly McGinnis. Now, she is not on the list of known victims of Gary Ridgway. Now, this is the prostitute who had been with Ridgway when he had been questioned by the police the previous year about choking the prostitute out by the airport. Now, as both the number of disappeared and the body count continued to increase, the Green River Task Force dedicated to catching the killer was was inundated with tips and other offers of assistance. Among the interested was Ted Bundy, who from his prison cell contributed to, in helping to form a profile of the unknown killer. He, as he had been raised in Tacoma, Bundy was very familiar with the areas in which the murders were taking place. One of the numerous persons of interest, Gary Ridgway, was twice given a polygraph test in 1984 and 1986. Both. Both times he passed. So Ridgway was on the radar for many, many years. They just didn't have the evidence or they didn't put the time in. I'm not sure. They, They done... Law enforcement was different back then. I just I just feel like he, he passed both the, the, the lie detectors, so maybe that was enough to take him off the radar. Uh, now, if you notice here, this Marie Malvar, make a little side note here, her boyfriend watched, you know, Ridgeway was picking these prostitutes up. Now, that's what was going on in the 80s, maybe even early 90s. But that's why you look at the Long Island serial killer, Lisk, we, they believed in he started out by picking girls up on the streets and then went to adapted the whole Craigslist thing because someone had seen him pick up one of the earlier girls that he killed. So he went to the Craigslist to where he had them come to them. Wouldn't really have to worry about people seeing a prostitute that ends up dead getting into his vehicle. So even after being questioned about the disappearance of Marie Malvar, Even after being questioned about choking a prostitute out near the airport, um, he he passed the two polygraphs, and I'm assuming at the time that was going to be enough. But police did search his locker at work and studied his timesheets, and of course, coworkers started calling him calling Ridgeway the Green River Gary. Which no one even gave a serious thought to the notion that he might be the serial killer because he was so passive and likable. Now, it was during this period that Ridgway married yet again. And by all accounts, the marriage appeared to be a happy one. Ridgway was seen as a devoted husband who said he was said to treat his wife like a queen. By 1986, it appeared that the Green River killer had stopped his activities. Now, bodies were still being found. But it was obvious that the victims had been murdered many years earlier. Now the task force continued, albeit with the lessened staff, but by April of 1987 they searched Gary Ridgway's home, took a DNA sample, and let him be. So 1987, April of 1987 was really the last contact for a bit with with authorities and Gary Ridgway. Now In 1991, nine years after it had begun its work, the Green River Task Force was reduced to a single person. By this time, $15 million had been spent in its efforts to catch the Green River Killer. So, by 1991, the Green River Task Force is one person. It's a one-man operation. Uh, Now, through this time, the murders, the number of murders committed by Ridgway is believed to be as high as 71 and possibly more. For a decade, he targeted prostitutes and runaways who were on the street at night. Most of the murders, though, occurred in a two-year period between 1982 and 1984. Now, Ridgway himself isn't even sure how many victims there were because there had been so many he just couldn't remember. For him to kill 40-plus people in a two-year period, that is a ton i mean i hate one is too many i'm not saying that but i'm just saying i don't think you can even appreciate the amount of time that he had had to dedicate that that is an insane number and to imagine the pressure of looking over your shoulder i mean that i'm just looking at it from a different point of view i mean After killing his victims, Ridgway disposed of most of the bodies around the Green River, hence his nickname. Sometimes there were clusters of bodies dumped, all nude, and often posed for impact for anyone who found them. Now, occasionally Ridgway would go back and have intercourse with the corpses. Now, I believe in an interview Ridgway had done, basically the way I understand it, is he would cluster some of them, and some of them would have their own special site by themselves. And I think those were the victims that Ridgeway would go back and visit after death. Uh, he was into necrophilia, just like Ted Bundy. So if, if it was a special victim to him, they would have their own individual grave site or burial site, not really burial, their own site, away from the cluster of other girls that he'd killed, and that would be the one he would go back and visit. Now, if they're in a cluster, they're not a special victim to him, and they're just gonna be, it's just a dumping ground. But if they're special enough to Gary, Ridgway, he's gonna leave them in a in an isolate or in a place alone or by themselves, an individual place for that one victim, and he would go back and revisit. Now, Ridgway's modus operandi was to gain the prostitute's trust by showing them a photo of his son. Now he would have toys in the truck. Um uh, it would help build up his lie, you know. He would show him his driver's license, and he, you know, next to his driver's license would be pictures of his son. But all he was thinking is, once I gained their trust, then I could kill the bitch, quote Gary Ridgway. Um, now, once the prostitute agreed to go with him and he had control, he would rape them and then strangle them to death. Because of the way the victim would struggle and sometimes would leave marks on Ridgway when he would manually strangle them, he had begin to use a ligature instead. Now, the crime scene would be his truck, it would be his home, or he, in some, some instances, a secluded area where he would kill without being seen. Now, while investigators were hunting Ridgeway, they sometimes interviewed Ted Bundy to get an insight into the man they were looking for and the murders he committed. Now, one tip Ted Bundy told them was that the killer most likely was going back to the bodies to have sex with them, which turned out to be right. He suggested that if they found a fresh grave, they should wait by it for him to return. Now, like I said, he would dispose those bodies in clusters unless he'd planned on to, if he'd planned on to revisit, and then they would have a secluded, isolated gravesite of their own. Uh, because Ridgeway had been previously charged related to prostitution. He was considered a suspect, a suspect in 1984 and was subjected to polygraph tests, which, as I said, he passed too. They interviewed Bridgeway again in April of 1987, this time taking saliva and hair samples from him. The analysis of the DNA would come way later. So 1987 DNA was not where it needed to be. So, they go visit him in April of 87, and that's really the last interaction they have with him. And by 1991, the task force is down to one man. It's spent $15 million. The city has no idea who it is. You know, he's been dormant, but it's still out there. It's still on their back. It's still in the back of their mind. Who has killed all these women? You know, I mean, 40, 50, 60, 70 women have gone missing, and some have been found. But who was doing it? And by then, they didn't know. The case remained all but dormant for decades until in April. This always happens in April. This is April. Maybe this is a good month. Is this April? Yeah. In April of 2001, there's a new sheriff in town, and guess what he decides to do? He's going to step up the investigation. Among the new activities he plans on doing is some DNA analysis. We'll be right back. All right, guys, the case is dormant. It's April 2001. A new sheriff comes in. He's wanting to start doing some new DNA testing. Um, now, what they're doing among the new initiatives was a DNA analysis of some semen that they found on the bodies of several of the Green Miller killers' victims. Now, back then, no one had any concerns about leaving their semen on people, I assume. I mean, it was fingerprints or blood or whatever it may be, but no one thought that. So many years down the road, they'll take your semen and tell exactly who you are. But science is amazing. Now, using a new testing method, in September, a link was made between... Who? In September, a link was made between the semen's DNA, which was found on several of the victims, and the DNA obtained from Gary Leon Ridgway in 1987. Now, being watched by police on November the 16th, Ridgway was arrested in another undercover prostitution sting. So what had caused him to go dormant for so long, his his new wife, whatever it may be, but now does he feel the pressure? Is Is he starting to want to venture back out, that those urges are starting to creep back up again? Because you'll notice that the majority of his victims that are known were from 82 to 84. Then you had an 86, an 87, a 90, and a 98. Now, the last two victims that are known were two of his older victims. They were 36 and 38, but they were committed, or they were found on March the 5th of 1990 and January of 98. Now, I'm assuming that they're also stating that they were committed in that time also Um, now he's being watched he's arrested in an undercover prostitution sting he's apparently back up to some of his old tricks now three days after appearing in court on the charge Ridgeway was arrested and charged with the murders of Marcia Chapman, Cynthia Hines Opal Mills and Carol Ann Christensen four of the women whose bodies had been found with his DNA. Now, on November the 5th of 2003, Gary Leon Ridgway pleaded guilty to the aggravated first-degree murder of 48 women. In doing so, he fulfilled his part of a deal that would spare him the death penalty. Another condition of the agreement would be that he would assist in efforts to locate the remains of his victims. Ridgway claimed that all of his victims had been killed in and around the Seattle area. The bodies of two victims had been disposed of 250 kilometers to the south in Portland, Oregon, in an attempt to confuse the police. Of the women he confessed to murdering, 44 were killed between 1982 and 1984 after which he claimed to have committed only four murders, 1986, 1987, 1990, 1998. So, was he dormant? Was he silent those years? Did he stop? You know, also, too, um, like I was saying, when they they arrested Ridgeway at work at the truck factory in November 2001, um, Of course, at his trial in uh, November the 5th of 2003, let's see, make sure that's right, yeah, 48, the statements he had made to the court was that he had killed all the victims in King County, Washington, and of course he had dumped them near Portland just to confuse the police, a few of them. Now, sentencing occurred on December 18th, 2003, and Ridgway received 48 life sentences with no possibility of parole. He also was sentenced to another life sentence, this one to be served consecutively. Uh, a further 10 year per victim was added totaling 480 for tampering with evidence in each murder. Now, initially Ridgway was kept in solitary confinement at the Washington State Penitentiary until he pleaded with the federal government in 2005 to be moved to the minimum medium security section of Airway Heights. Now he remained there until May of 2015 at which time he was transferred to a high secure federal prison in Colorado. That is the the supermax. The fucker was up there with damn, the Unabomber and the Underwear Bomber and everybody else. However in, in September that year he was moved back to Washington partly due to public pressure. He was flown back flown back in a chartered plane in October, so he could be more accessible to investigators working on other murder cases. Um, now, like we had talked, 44 of the deaths were between uh, 82 and 84. So skeptics point out that this bloody history is atypical of serial killers, and of course, they speculate that he may have he may have committed more murders in other locations. And some of the speculation is at some point. Uh, to a series of 40 prostitutes murdered in and around San Diego from 85, from 1985 to 1991. During those years, it is thought that Ridgway traveled to the city as his son was there, uh, was then living there. Other theories put forth the idea that he was involved in the disappearance of some of the approximately 60 women who vanished from the streets of Vancouver's downtown east side from the early 1980s through 2002 on December the 18th 2003 Ridgeway was C48 life sentence with no possibility of parole um, he is currently incarcerated at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla probably still claiming that the murders were committed for the betterment of society so was Ridgeway involved in two different series of murders of women in San Diego and in Vancouver I don't know Ridgway was quoted in a statement saying that murdering young women was his career. Ridgway, quote, I would talk to her and get her mind off of the, the sex or anything that she was nervous about and think, you know, she thinks, oh, this guy cares. Which I didn't. I just wanted to uh get her in the vehicle and eventually kill her. So Gary Leon Ridgway, that's not what I want you to take from this. Gary Leon Ridgway was the Green River Killer. But in July 1982, August of 82, September of 82, October of 82, December of 82, he killed Wendy Lee Caulfield, Giselle Ann Lovorn, Deborah Lynn Bonner, Let me give you their age. Wendy Cofield, 16. Giselle Lovern 17. Deborah Bonner, 23. Marsha Chapman, 31. Cynthia Hines 17. Opal Mills, 16. Terry Milligan, 16. Mary Meehan, 18. Deborah Estes, 15. Linda Rule, 16. Denise Bush, 23. Shonda Summers, 16. Shirley Sherrill, 18. Rebecca Merrill, 20. Sandra Major, 20. March, April, May... June, July, August, September, October, November, December of 1983, he killed Alma Smith, 18, Dolores Williams, 17, Gail Matthews, 23, Andrew Childers, 19, Sandra Gabbert, 17, Kimmy Pitzer, 16, Marie Malvar, 18, Carol Christensen, 21, Madine Authorley 18, Cheryl Williams, 18, uh, Yvonne Antosh, 19, Carrie Ann Royce, 15, Ross, 15. Constance Nayon, 19. Kelly Ware, 22. Tina Thompson, 21. April Butram, 16. Uh, Debbie Abernathy, 26. Tracy Winston, 19. Maureen Finney, 19. Mary Bello, 25. Pammy Avant, 15. Delise Plager, 22. Kimberly Nelson, 21. Lisa Yates, 19. February, March, uh, see, February, March, and February, March of 1984, he killed Mary West, 16; Cindy Smith, 17; October of 86, he killed Patricia Barzak, 19; February of 87, Roberta, Roberta Hayes, 21; March of 1990, Marta Reeves, 36; and January of 1998, Patricia Yellowrobe. But also another mind that another name that comes to my mind is what happened to. The woman that he was seen, Kelly McGinnis, he was she was in his presence in his truck when he was questioned about strangling the other prostitute near the airport, and then this woman goes missing, but her name is not on here, so she's not a no, one of his known victims. But it is very suspicious, and more than likely, she is a victim of Gary Ridgway. But. Gary Ridgway still in prison. Gary Ridgway is where he needs to be. But let's not forget these victims and their families. And even Ridgway's family, if he's got any hell, I'm sure. You know, this, these this, these, murders are horrendous. And I don't mean any disrespect by telling the story to the families, the victims of the families. Just, It's a story that needs to be told. And that's why I wanted to mention their names. And uh Gary Ridgway's a fucking real piece of shit. But I hope that you make it through with your sanity intact through this uh quarantine and I hope that this pandemic distraction, episode one, the Green River Killer will help you get through today and maybe give you a thought of others out there that are less fortunate and you may be going through something that's worse than that. You may be really going through something, and you're in our thoughts and our prayers, and we hope that everybody is healthy and doing well, and we just wish and hope for the best. This is The Weekly Podcast.